Please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. This is the very word of the Lord. Last week, I introduced um, a theme that we are asking the Lord to help us uh, think through over the next year in our worship gatherings together. The theme is the life-giving love of God. The life-giving love of God. So what texts in the Bible, which books of the Bible should we turn to in order for us to think a little bit more deeply about the life-giving love of God? How about Ezekiel? That's the one that came to mind. I mean, that was the first one that you thought, that's the book to go to for the life-giving love of God. Now, why would we choose Ezekiel? Of course, when you're thinking about such a grand theme in the Bible as the life-giving love of God, I suppose you could turn to about any book of the Bible. But as long as I am one of your ministers, one of your pastors, we are going to make sure that we linger in the Old Testament. It's easy for us as Christians to run to the New Testament, and that's understandable. But I think if we're honest... A lot of us as Christians don't find much that we're familiar with when we turn to the pages of the Old Testament. What do these old books have to do with us as Christians? Well, it's my conviction that if we don't understand our Old Testament, we're really not going to understand the full force of what happens in the New. The Bible tells one story. It tells the story of a God who created a world and of a God who loves his world so much that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You're familiar, of course, with those famous words. My hope, as long as we get to be a church together and I get to serve here, is that we will understand those words as they are also communicated to us in the story of the Old Testament. So we've moved this morning to these, this interesting book called Ezekiel. And if we're going to understand the life-giving love of God, I think it's important for us to trace the hand of God's providence throughout history. The points in history that most clearly show the providence of God, those moments in history you say only God could have done something like that, also suggest to us that God's providence is in effect all the time. The points in history that most clearly show the providential hand of God also suggest to you and to me 
in the ordinary course of events that this God is active, providentially active all along. So this morning, my goal is to introduce to you the book of Ezekiel. These three verses which open the book of Ezekiel are probably the right place for us to begin because they point us to the historical setting of the book, the prophetic message of the book, and they introduce to us the rather strange character whose name is the book's title. So this morning, I want to introduce to you the book of Ezekiel by looking through these three elements, the historical setting, the prophetic message, and the strange character named Ezekiel. First, let's get our minds around the historical setting in which the book of Ezekiel is based. Ezekiel is dealing with historical realities, things that, <laughs> things that really happened. Ezekiel is rooted in a specific moment in human history as the very first verse reminds us. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, Ezekiel begins with a note about the exact year, month, and day in which he was living. In fact, this is a dominant feature in Ezekiel. Throughout the book, we're going to find that he's concerned with the time, the specific time in history that he was in. And we should take note of this specific moment in history and the circumstances in which his prophecies took place. From the dating that Ezekiel gives us, we are zooming in on the late 7th century and early 6th century B.C. You familiar with that moment in history? Well, let's take a look for a moment because you're probably like me and you're like, I think I learned about some of those times back in ancient history, which for some of you was ancient history when you learned it. It's been a long time. So let's see if we can remind ourselves about what was happening in the world in the late 7th century, early 6th century B.C., this was the time in which the Babylonian Empire rose to power, superseding the previous world domination of the Assyrians. These two superpowers were in constant conflict as we neared the turn of the century. The Assyrians, in a last effort to hold on to power, had made an alliance with a third power of the world at that day, the Egyptians, attempting to stave off the rise of the Babylonians. But history tells us, of course, that they would not succeed. At the famous Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, the Babylonians and their allies defeated the last remnants of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria disappears from history after 605. The defeat marked the utter annihilation of Assyria, and Egypt was severely crippled. The Babylonians, under their military leader, Nebuchadnezzar became the world superpower. The Bible mentions that famous battle in Jeremiah 46. This famous battle is mentioned outside of the Bible in the Babylonian Chronicles, which today can still be viewed in the British Museum. Again, can I put this before us just so that it doesn't escape us? We are talking here about real historical events. Are you with me? These are things that historians tell us 
took place. This isn't just folklore. It's not just some religious text. These are real historical events. The story of the Bible cannot be understood apart from the record of what has happened in the world and in human history. But it's not correct to say that the Bible is simply a book of history, merely telling us about things that have happened in time and space. The Bible tells us about these events theologically. That is to say, it argues that these events all happen under the purview of God. The Bible insists that the events of history are the outworking of God's providence, which our catechism defines as God's completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing every creature and every action. When we think of the providence of God, we ought to be thinking not so much of divine power, but of divine purpose. What brings history and providence together is God's aim in history. And to understand God's aims, we need to see how the events of history that we're talking about here impacted and affected God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. How did the decisive events of the late 7th century, early 6th century BC affect Israel? At this point, of course, when we say Israel, we're talking mainly about the southern kingdom of Israel known as Judah. The northern tribes having fallen to the Assyrians over a century earlier. We know that Babylon and Assyria and Egypt were the competing powers of the day, but how did Judah fit into the equation? After all, the answer to that question is also the answer to what God's providential purpose for these historical events was all about. Okay, so you got a little bit of the history, ancient history in your mind. Let's focus now on the nation of Israel and the important points that need to be noted here as we get into Ezekiel. The time is recorded for us at the end of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 23, we read of the reforms of Israel's last good king. His name was Josiah. Josiah was killed by the Egyptians in 609 B.C. He was succeeded by his son, Jehoahaz. Okay, we're going to have to try to, we're going to have to repeat these. That's the only way you know the names. So we have Josiah, say it. And now Jehoahaz. All right. Jehoahaz was Josiah's son. But the Pharaoh of Egypt soon deposed him three months into his reign and set up his own puppet king, another one of Josiah's sons named Jehoiakim. So we got Josiah. You like this? Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. I told you, it's like history class all over again. Jehoiakim was Jehoahaz's brother, and he reigned for 11 years. Now, that puts us at this time in which the Babylonians became the world's new superpower. And Nebuchadnezzar made Jehoiakim his vassal while at the same time deporting some of Judah's elite, like, you know the name, 
Daniel and his friends took them to Babylon. But when Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar conquered and apparently executed him. That meant the next in line, Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim. Josiah, I know it's hard, isn't it? Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. You're going to have to know these names. His son, this new son, uh, this new king, Jehoiakim, takes over the throne, but he also refused to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, who had him deported to Babylon along with most of Judah's wealth. And at this point, Ezekiel, along with other captives, was taken to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar named Zedekiah the king of Judah. One more time, Zedekiah. He also was another one of Josiah's sons, so Jehoiakim's uncle. The year was 597 B.C. This is an important date for Ezekiel since he dates his prophecies in relation to the exile of King Jehoiakim. You saw that even in this text in verse 2. So 597 B.C. is the date for Ezekiel around which all of his prophecies are related But there's one more date that you need to know in ancient history as it relates to Judah that's significant at this time. And it would come some 11 years later, in 587 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar once more invaded Judah when Zedekiah rebelled against him. But don't worry, you don't need to know another name of one of Israel's kings. Because this time, Nebuchadnezzar held nothing back. According to the biblical text, he made Zedekiah watch as he slaughtered Zedekiah's sons right in front of his eyes. He then gouged out the eyes of Zedekiah and hauled him off in chains to Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar did the unthinkable. He torched the city of Jerusalem, including Solomon's great, beautiful temple. He burned it all to the ground. And in that year, 587 BC, came the end of the line of the Davidic kings. Now, Why do we need to know about all that? (laughs) Does this history really matter? Well, the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of the Jews to Babylon, the end of Israel's monarchy, all of this is the historical setting in which Ezekiel was written. Now, to put it mildly, this was a traumatic moment. In this historical setting, in this moment of great trauma, God spoke to Israel a prophetic message. Ezekiel tells us here in verse 1, I saw 
visions of God. Verse 3 says, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel is categorized in our English Bibles with the other major prophets of Israel. So if you're still trying to find, where's Ezekiel here? You'll find him, of course, among Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. Lamentations thrown in as well, since Jeremiah wrote wrote that book. The term major prophet that we use in our English division of the Bible simply signifies the length of those prophets' written text in comparison with those much more obscure, harder to find in your Bible, minor prophets, the 12 that come after Daniel. But in the Hebrew Bible, there is only a threefold division of the sacred texts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, stay with me again. Some of you are like history people. You're loving this. Others of you, like, you've lost me. Just I'm tr- Hang in there. Hang in there. This historical division in the, in the Hebrew Bible is also significant because the prophets include the historical texts of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. They're called in the Hebrew Bible the former prophets. They are then followed by the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 that we call the minor prophets. So whether you're using the English order or the Hebrew order, Ezekiel is considered a prophetic book. What does that mean? It means that when we read through the book of Ezekiel, you can expect that you're going to see some foretelling of events, what we might call predictive prophecy. But that's not the primary feature of a text that categorizes it as prophetic. Consider again, in the Hebrew Bible, the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are considered prophets. Why would that be? It's not because of the prediction of history, but rather because of the interpretation of history. The prophets are telling the story of Israel and explaining how Israel's God is interacting with Israel's story. History is a strange thing. We know it's the reality that our entire existence is built upon. But at the same time, if you're like me, it might be the most significant personal reality that is easiest to ignore. (laughs) I find it fascinating that the British monarchy's family tree can be traced back all the way to the ninth century. I looked it up. I mean, the news of the day is making me even more curious about this. Yeah, Alfred the Great was the new king of England's 33rd great-grandfather. How cool is that? I don't even know the name of my second great-grandfather. We seem to easily lose our grip on our own history, don't we? It's hard enough to take in the realities of what's happening in real-time history, just say in other parts of the world. I mean, what's it like? What's it really like 
to be living right now in war-torn Ukraine or Syria. We, mostly Americans, have a very little idea. So, of course, it's a challenge for us to take in the realities of what people in the ancient world experienced. What was it like for the Jews in the early 6th century, having been exiled to Babylon, having their land invaded, their great city destroyed, their temple burned to the ground? Can you understand it? Can you try to take it in? Since we here in Oklahoma have received over 1,000 Afghan refugees in the past year and a half, you and I get the opportunity to know some people who have been displaced by something somewhat similar to what the Jews experienced in the Babylonian captivity. Though pretty much all of us have not had that kind of experience, we have probably faced the same kinds or similar kinds of theological trauma. As one commentator says, Israel in captivity was experiencing intense theological shock. Some of you have experienced that. You have come to the point where your experiences or your observations of life simply do not line up with your understanding of God, and it has led to nothing less than a crisis, a crisis of faith. That's what happened to Israel when they were taken into captivity in Babylon. Just imagine with me, or just think through this with me for a moment, about these historical events and how theologically traumatic it must have been for them. First, Israel believed that God, their God, was absolutely committed to them as, their, as his chosen people. They believed this because God had established a covenant with them, having brought them out of Egypt in the preamble to the Ten Commandments, we read these words. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He was entering a covenant with them. I am your God. I am the God of Israel. I am the God who destroyed the Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. I am your God. You got me on your side. So, along with the psalmist Israel, I'm sure often said, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear What can man do to me? Except the answer at this point is, well, they can uproot me from my home, carry me off to live in a different country, invade my land, live in my house, destroy my capital city, burn the temple to the ground. Intense theological shock. You and I know that the Bible says, in fact, we said it together this morning. We said it. If God is for us, who can be against us? And some of you are saying, I know a few names. Right? 
There's a lot of things that seem to be stacked against us that many of God's people, many of you have faced or are facing now. And in times when you don't succeed, in times when you do not prosper, in times when you feel that you have suffered far too long and far too much, you will be tempted to think that God has abandoned you after all. Well, that's what the people Ezekiel, Ezekiel ministered to were tempted to think. So perhaps this ancient prophet has a word to help you if that's where you're at. Now, another core belief of Israel was God's commitment, not just to his people, but God's commitment to his king, to the descendants of David. The fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians with the southern kingdom of Judah surviving Assyrian attack was no doubt a strengthening of that assurance. I mean, after all, those northern tribes, you remember Israel's history, had broken away from the Davidic line. Their kings were not descendants of David, many of them. So, of course, God had no commitment to them. But the kings of Judah preserved the Davidic line, and it was to them God made this promise, 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13. Here's what God said. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, to David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The history of Judah's kings tells the story of some bad kings along the way, and it would be no surprise that God would punish those bad kings. But what would it mean for Israel to no longer have a king? This seemed impossible given the covenant. I saw yesterday, I saw the video yesterday of the, I don't, what do they call them over there in Britain? The proclam, proclaimer, what? announcing the new king. And then he said these words, God save the king. Well, what happens, Israel, when he doesn't? This would put into question not just God's ability or willingness to keep his, to keep his covenant to his people, but more, more importantly, this would put into question the ability of God to rule. It's one thing for God to abandon his people. It's another thing when you begin to question, maybe this God that I've been believing in my whole life is really not as powerful as I thought. Oh, I know. You're Christians. You never think like that. Some of you have. Third, God had made a commitment not just to his people and not just to the Davidic monarchy. God had also made a commitment to a particular place in which his people were to live and where David was to rule. You know the name of the city? Jerusalem. God claimed that this land and especially this city was his place. <laughs> So surely God would never allow Jerusalem to be overrun by pagans. 
That would be just too much. Even if God proved himself incapable of defeating foreign armies on their turf, how could God allow his own land to be invaded and run by idolaters? Ezekiel's prophecy comes to us with an answer. Since Judah was trying to secure its place in the shifting political climate, the nation got caught in an adulterous love triangle with Egypt and Babylon. And so God says to them in Ezekiel 23, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and your whoring. I will put an end to lewdness in the land. Those are some tough words. Many American Christians like to use words like this to warn America about what God will do with this country. But America is not the promised land. God has made no such covenant with this nation. You and I, Christians, should be much more concerned about what God would do with us if we get caught up in adulterous love affairs with the political powers of men in order to secure our own place and privileges in the world, we should tremble. And Ezekiel has a word for us. Finally, Israel was certain that if all else failed, all right, God doesn't seem to keep his covenant with us. God puts an end to the monarchy. Okay, that's confusing. I thought he could rule. All right, God lets his land be inhabited by pagans. That's confusing. But if all else failed, surely God would come to the defense of his own temple, right? I mean, his own house. The temple Solomon had built, the place where God himself promised to live among his people. The idea that the temple would be destroyed. Listen, that was blasphemy to the Jews, Literally, blasphemy. It was heresy. To say this temple won't last was heretical. It was a denial of one of Israel's core doctrines. Are you with me? But it did fall. As we've seen, burned to the ground by the Babylonians. That's historical fact, and it's also a theological crisis. Now, I'm not here to suggest to you that As we go through Ezekiel, it's going to be time to give up any of our core Christian doctrines. But what we should keep in mind is that Jesus got himself into the same kind of trouble when he himself predicted the destruction of the second temple in his own day. Christian doctrine is sure and steadfast, but sometimes our understanding of this doctrine is off. We need to let Christian truth, Christian doctrine be reformed by Jesus himself, who after all, quite controversially said these words, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up. It was blasphemy. One of the charges brought against Jesus in his trial But in the theological crisis, in the theological trauma of Good Friday, God was up to something. God was doing something new, raising Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday and completing the inauguration of the long-awaited promised kingdom of God. 
Yeah, maybe we should allow our doctrines to be reformed and reshaped by the person of Jesus. So this is my hope, Crosstown, that as we study the book of, Isra- of Ezekiel, book of Israel, the book of Ezekiel together, God will shape and form us and our doctrine, our beliefs about God and his purposes in the world through the story of Israel at this moment in history. Hosea 6.3, I shared with some of us before we, before we started the service today. Hosea 6.3, I read this week, says, let us press on to know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. I'm asking you, members of Crosstown and all who come and join us on this journey through this book, I'm asking you to press on, press on. For too long, we've thought we've figured God out. We know everything about him. Let's press on. Let's know who he really is. And our guide for this journey is the strange character named Ezekiel. We don't know a lot about him. Apparently, his name would have been Ezekiel ben Buzi. There you go. Ezekiel, the son of a man named Buzi. (laughs) There's a name for you. The name Ezekiel means God strengthens. May God strengthen our faith as we study his book. But the name Ezekiel can also mean God toughens or God hardens. His audience seemed to accept that God was speaking to them through Ezekiel. They would say to one another, come and hear what the, Lord, what the word is that comes from the Lord, Ezekiel thirty-three thirty. But then, and they come to you as people come. God says, they sit before you as my people. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. Whoa. That's always the situation that we are placed in when we come before the word of God. As we study Ezekiel, our faith will be strengthened. But only as we come to not only hear its words, but obey its, obey its instruction. Because if we don't, the opposite will be the effect. Ezekiel says of himself that he was by profession a priest. Even though we will come to know him more as a prophet. At the very time, in fact, that he would have completed his training as a priest and entered into service. Age 30, according to Numbers 4, verse 3, at that very time, God called him to a prophetic work instead. By the way, that's what the 30th year in verse 1 probably refers to. The 30th year of his life. You say, okay. At age 30, a priest in training would enter into service. At the very moment when that's what he'd been training for his whole life, but thought that he could never now fulfill because he was carried away into exile, God says, I have a new profession for you. I have a new work for you to do. Now, the prophets of Israel, you probably know, often said strange things, and sometimes they did strange things. And on this point, Ezekiel is, as one commentator says, in a class of his own. (laughs) Get ready. This guy does some really bizarre things. 
And it's going to be tempting when you read Ezekiel to say, that is so crazy, I can't believe it. But remember, Ezekiel lived and worked among a people who were in a religious desert, far removed from their world of religious tradition. And it seemed that God's intention was to take Ezekiel and turn him into a visible sign, a a living religious institution, one commentator says, that would be an effective vehicle for the nurturing of faith and the communication of divine truth. When you're in the midst of a spiritual desert, God may seek to get our attention and your attention in the most unusual ways. By the way, Ezekiel himself was greatly surprised by all this. He was completely taken over by God's spirit, a man seized by God, as another commentator refers to him. And his aim was to transform Israel's understanding of their relationship to God. Did he succeed? Was Ezekiel's ministry a success? As we read through Ezekiel, we'll come to see, it appears he was a colossal failure. But after Ezekiel had died, it appears that the nation of Israel, living in exile in Babylon, began to have a shift in their spiritual condition. History records for us that Israel goes into exile, deconstructing their faith. Theological crisis, theological shock. I don't think I can believe in this God anymore. They come out of exile, reformed, transformed. We weren't thinking of God the right way. We see him now a little bit better than we could see him before. And most commentaries will tell you it was undoubtedly because of the lingering effects of Ezekiel's prophecy. 700 years later, a similar preserving effect would come to the people of Israel after the fall of Jerusalem. Yes, 700 years later in AD 70, once again, this time at the hands of the Romans, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple burned to the ground. History has a way of repeating itself. These are historical facts. You can check them, not just in the Bible, but in history. And what was the effect of the people of Israel after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70? It appears, it appears that the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel had a preserving effect of the spiritual health of the, of the Israelites, of the new Israelites, some 700 years after Ezekiel was written. How do I know that? By the way, you shouldn't just be taking my word for any of this stuff. But here's how you know. When you read the strangest book in the New Testament, which book would that be? Yeah. The book of Revelation is filled, filled with analogies, metaphors, and texts that come from Ezekiel. You ever struggle to understand Revelation? You better start here because John the Revelator understood Ezekiel when he wrote Revelation. 
But let me give you another conjecture. And with this, I end. Many have suggested that Saul of Tarsus, as he journeyed on his way to Damascus, and you know what happened, a light shined down from heaven. What was Saul of Tarsus doing, thinking, as he journeyed to Damascus? It has been suggested by many commentaries. Again, this is conjecture, but this is pretty good one. Many have suggested that, that Paul, that Paul was meditating on Ezekiel's vision that we're going to look at next week, Ezekiel 1. And as he was meditating and thinking and imagining the scene, just, you can, you can read it, chapter 1, it's crazy things. We'll look at it next week. As he's meditating, as he's thinking about it, and he's looking up, and he's imagining, he opens his eyes, and there, seated on the throne, one like a son of man, Ezekiel says. And a voice from heaven spoke to him and said, I'm Jesus, whom you persecuted. And his life was changed. And so was yours. Because, the, because that Saul of Tarsus, you know as Paul the Apostle. How'd you get here, Christian? How'd you come to be part of this family tree? It was because of the ministry of Ezekiel. And we'll get into his prophecy next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you, O Lord, that you would give us understanding into the word of God. We don't think that this is going to come easily for us, but the things that matter, the things that last, the things that are impactful are often the things that come with some effort. So we want to commit to you. We want to commit to you that we will read, study, seek to understand best we can what you are saying to us. Would you, O oh Lord, give us the help of your Holy Spirit? Open our eyes like you did Saul of Tarsus to see what we couldn't see before. And may we be transformed by your word as we study it in the book of Ezekiel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.